chapter 1. And I am thankful for all of you that attend our Wednesday evening Bible study. And it's always a pleasure to open the Word of God. And I think for you to stick it out and come week after week and uh, you're tired on Wednesdays after work and all that you have to do, I think it speaks well that you're interested in God's Word and you do want to be here to hear it. Now, our study tonight, then, is once again in this first chapter of Galatians, and we're looking at verses 11 through 24. So if you'll take your Bible, I'm not going to read uh, all the verses again, but we'll look at verse number 11 and read down through verse number 16, where the Apostle Paul says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many mine equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. And that's not the end of that sentence. It goes on a little bit further, but what we want to talk about tonight will uh, stop at that point or just a little bit prior to that. This evening we're speaking again about God's gospel, and this is Paul's defense of his apostleship. And in this section of scripture, we have some biographical information about Paul, uh, some things about him before he was converted to Christ, and then there's some uh, other things about his activities after he became a Christian. And all of this is very pertinent information because what Paul is doing, he's relating facts about the way that he received the gospel and how he was personally called by Christ to be an apostle. Now, the occasion for this is what had occurred in the Galatian churches. There were false teachers that came there after Paul had organized those churches, and they claimed that Paul had no authority for the gospel that he preached. And they said, Paul is not an apostle, and the message that he preached is a gospel of his own invention, but not and not the true gospel of Christ. And these false teachers were doing what Paul said was preaching another gospel, or he said it is a different gospel. He means that it's not one of the same kind because the result is not the same. They're preaching a false gospel, and so people that listen to that will lose their souls if they believe it, and they end up in hell. And for that reason, Paul said, if anyone preaches a different gospel than that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And that's very strong language. And Paul had to have something to back that up. And so he had to prove that he actually was a true apostle of Christ and that he had the authority of Christ. Otherwise, there's no reason for these people to listen to him. And his word is no better than those Judaizers who are teaching the false gospel. So in this section of scripture, Paul tells the Galatians how he had received the gospel and since he wasn't one of the original 12 apostles and he had not met Christ during his personal ministry, then the question is, what kind of proof can he show that he truly is a messenger of Christ? Well, the way that he provides that truth is to relate the events of his life that are pertinent to his conversion. 
and how he had received instruction directly from God and that he wasn't preaching a gospel of his own invention, but this was God's gospel and that God had revealed it to him in a very miraculous way. Usually, people are brought to Christ by someone telling them the gospel, giving them a gospel presentation, and then people begin to grow by going to church and hearing preachers and hearing teachers and all of that, reading books, whatever it might be. They grow in their Christian faith. But what Paul points out here is that he had none of that. He had no contact with anybody that was a preacher of the gospel. He had, uh, I mean, to, to learn anything from them in particular, he wasn't taught this by anyone. And so he says in Galatians or in verses 11 and 12 of the first chapter, but I certify you brethren that the gospel which is preached of me is not after man for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, your outline tonight starts with point number three, and it relates to verses 15 and 16. But before we get to that, I want to back up just a little bit to the previous point and discuss the events prior to Paul's conversion. Now, in those 13, in the 13th and 14th verses, Paul talks about his religious training before he became a Christian. And he wasn't a marginally religious person. He wasn't like many people that are just barely interested in religion or they may say that they're Christians, but they're not devout. They don't really have much to do with their faith. And there were Jews in Paul's time that were like that, just like there are Christians today that uh, aren't really devout in what they believe. You know, sometimes I'm, when I'm speaking to people in the church, maybe talking about their family members, that somebody will tell me, you know, well, my, my uh, relative, brother, sister, mother, father, whatever, they're Roman Catholics. And a question that I almost invariably ask when somebody tells me that, I say, well, are they practicing Catholics? Are they devout Catholics? And you have to ask that question because there are many people that claim to be Roman Catholics, but they haven't been in a church for years. They, they haven't been to church for who knows how long. And then on the other hand, you have those that make it to Mass every single week, and they buy into all other traditions of Roman Catholicism. Now, Paul's point in the 13 and 14th verses is that he was not a nominal Jew. He was a practicing Jew. He was zealous for his religion. He was very, very uh, rigorously following all of the traditions of his fathers. Now, another place we learn that Paul was a Pharisee, he mentions that in several other places. And his testimony of telling people that he's a Pharisee is to show them that he was in the tip-top upper echelon of those that were dedicated to the faith. And so he says in verse 14 that he profited in the Jews' religion above others. And that means that he had attained a place of stature among them, that he was so highly regarded and so zealous about his faith that he actually became a persecutor of those who disagreed with him. See, the way that the Apostle Paul looked at Christianity was that it was a terrible threat to the Jewish faith. I mean, here is something that's born out of Judaism and has its roots there. And so Paul hating Christ, hated Christianity because he thought that that was a threat to his own religion. Now, he thought that Jesus was, a, was an imposter. He wasn't the Messiah, not the one promised from God. Now, the point of him relating all that information is that being so learned and being so staid and being so steadfast in what he believed, then how is it possible for him to come out of that? How is it possible for him to completely turn around and change directions and start to live the faith that he once persecuted? 
And he shows us here that the only way that that can happen is by divine intervention. There was no way that he could change or he would change unless God performed a miracle in his life. Well, then he goes on in verse number 15 to show that all of this happened because God had a plan for him. Now, thirdly, then, is the irresistible plan for Paul's conversion. He says, when it pleased God... And in this statement, Paul clearly shows that what happened to him was not his own choice, that he wasn't the master of his fate, but he, his life was lived at God's pleasure. And then at the time that God saw that it was fitting for him to become a Christian, to be called, then God stepped into his life and turned him completely around. On the last message, we spent our time on this particular aspect of his conversion, and that is the conception of God. He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. And that is an affirmation of God's sovereign choice. That before Paul was born, that God had a plan for his life. And this wasn't a plan that was developed in time. This wasn't something that God knew because he saw the future and he knew at some point that Paul was going to do this and he would choose to become a Christian. No, what Paul is trying to tell us here is that this is according to God's predetermined, predestined plan. That's how he became a Christian. So God chose him for salvation before Paul ever had an opportunity to do anything. This was before he was born from his mother's womb, he says, that God, that God had uh, called him to this. And so, not having been born, God claimed him and God determined that he would be a child of the Heavenly Father. Now, last week I pointed out that Paul was not some weird special case that Paul is unusual or Paul is out of the ordinary. But as we look back at the Old Testament, we saw that this is the way that God always works, that God always has a plan, that God always makes his choices. And the Bible is full of that. And you and I are not, uh, are not out of the ordinary, not, not in the sense that God didn't speak to us and God didn't call us and God didn't have a plan for us. Of course he did. God chose us before we were ever born, and that's why that we have become believers in him. Paul said, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And you'll notice the way that Paul states those kinds of things in Scripture and the way that he mentions it here in, in these particular verses, that he makes no argument about it. There's no advancement of an argument here there's there's no polemic against people who don't believe in predestination and don't believe in God's sovereign choices the, the Jews never argued about that they accepted that there's no argument about this and today this is a hotbed of theological controversy when it really shouldn't be it's so clear in scripture that God makes his choices it should be easily accepted it really shouldn't be argued so the Bible is full of it the whole history of Israel is one big testament to God's sovereign choices and Paul states that as an uncontested fact that God decided what he would be before he was born and then God called him out of his sinfulness and blindness and gave him the truth and then made him a Christian and you know the only response that Paul offered to all of this when it happened to him you remember what it was? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That was the response to all of this. Now you'll notice in the next part of the verse, at the end of verse 15, Paul says, God called me by his grace. So that's what we look at next, the calling from God. 
And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, in an earlier message when we studied verse number 6, we talked about effectual calling. Uh, Paul said the Galatians were called into the grace of Christ. And we learned at that time that there is both an outward call and an inward call. And the outward call is when the gospel goes out to people indiscriminately, when the message is preached and all people hear it. And the word that they hear is the facts of the gospel. These are the things that they must believe in order to be saved. But the problem is the outward call has no power in itself. It takes more than that. It takes the inward call. For a person to come to Christ, he must be spoken to inwardly by the Holy Spirit. And that's when the Holy Spirit takes the word and he applies it to the sinner's heart and he regenerates that person and brings him to repentance and faith. And that inward call is essential because of the depravity of our hearts. It's because we are incapable of choosing Christ on our own. And that's because of the bondage of our will. God has to break our stubborn will and change the nature of man before he can believe. Now, Charles Wesley expressed that beautifully in his hymn, And Can It Be? And Charles Wesley wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Well, Charles Wesley is an odd spokesman for this truth, and that's because he and his brother John believed in a type of prevenient grace that may or may not justify. But nonetheless, he got this part exactly right, that we are bound in sin and nature's night. And nature's night there refers to that inherent sinful nature, that stubborn will that man has that's resistance to God. But when God quickens the sinner and brings him to life, the chains that bind him fall off, and this is when our hearts are free, and that's when we're enabled to come to Christ for salvation. And that is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. He was bound up in the Jews' religion. He was no different from any of the other Pharisees that would not believe in Christ. And so have you ever wondered how, how this happened to Paul? How is someone so deep in a false religion, the same as many others are, how does this person come to Christ? How does he get saved? And the answer to that is that God calls him by his grace, that the resistance to that call has been overcome by God, and that's why Paul said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Now, that's what we call effectual grace. John and Charles Wesley believed in a type of prevenient grace that allows the sinner to come to Christ, but it doesn't guarantee that he will come. What it says is that the sinner becomes savable, but not necessarily willing. And so at that, at that point, when a sinner hears the gospel of Christ, they taught that it's, matter, it's just a matter of decision-making. A man weighs the options, and then he decides for or against Christ. Now, when you look at this, do you get the picture of that? Is this what happened to Paul? Paul wasn't deciding options on the road to Damascus. He was conquered by God's grace, and then he was brought effectually to the knowledge of salvation. And we know that's a doctrine that many people don't like. Uh, people hate this doctrine. They try to figure out a way around it. And in my opinion, they draw all the wrong conclusions from it. 
And in the final analysis, what they come down to is they think that God effectually calling sinners and God electing people to salvation, that that is harmful to people. But I would ask, how could anything that God is fully responsible for be harmful to anybody? And this is the best news that you'll ever hear. But that be as it may, the doctrine is very utilitarian for us, for the Christian faith, because our full assurance is built on this. Our permanent salvation is grounded in the fact of these doctrines. And why is that so? Because God is the one who's fully responsible for what happens. See, God doesn't save us for anything that's foreseen in us, but God saves us purely by his grace. And then it's good for us because it, it, it doesn't matter what happens around us. I mean, if every person that, ever had, that we ever had confidence wavers and loses their faith, we know this, that our salvation is secure. This is what one author said. He said, let us resort to the election of God whenever we become dismayed or cast down. If we see men fall away, if the whole church should seem to come to naught, we must remember that God hath his foundation. That is, the church is not grounded upon the will of man, for they did not make themselves, neither can they reform themselves. But this proceedeth from the pure goodness and mercy of God. That's sweet doctrine, isn't it? I mean, that, that I rejoice in, in God our Savior whenever I hear these things or read these things. Just as Paul says, I am saved by God's grace. I am called by his grace. And Paul was a person who was most keenly aware of how undeserving that he was of God's grace. Remember, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed, which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Now, let me go a little bit further this evening. I want you to notice, thirdly, in God's plan for Paul's life, that there was a commission from God. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. And we'll stop there. It pleased God to separate Paul from his mother's womb and call him by his grace for this purpose, that he would preach Christ to heathens. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the word reveal there, to reveal his son in me. Because we might think, uh, might believe that that has something to do with God revealing himself in an intellectual way to Paul. But Christianity is more than an intellectual religion. Our intellect is involved, uh, that, that's for sure. But this word reveal has, has some more meaning to it. It's more than just receiving and assimilating information that's given to us. This is a word that actually means illumination. It means to receive the transforming knowledge of God. And so grace is revealed to our souls in such a way that it transforms a person completely. And that's best expressed by terms like being born again and being regenerated. See, when you're born, that's when you become a living being. And I'm not trying to argue for the 
point that life begins. I'm not talking about conception or, or, or those. When does life begin? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you are born into the world. That's when you take your place in the world, and that's when you become the person that you are in toto. That happens when you take your first breath. So then you're born as a rational creature. You have a human nature that's given to you, passed on to you by your father. And then you are spiritually what you are when you're born. And when you're born again, that's when a new nature is implanted in you. By regeneration, you're opened up to a new spiritual world that you had no idea about before. You could never even recognize it. And so you're transformed from a dead spiritual plane into a living spiritual plane. So to have Christ revealed in you is to enter into this living spiritual growth that wasn't possible before. And this is when you are molded into the image of Christ. And that's when you take your place as a servant in God's kingdom in the capacity that God has decided that you should serve. So this is what Paul is speaking of here in verse number 16. This is how God chose for him to walk his path in the kingdom, that all of that's laid out for him. And we recognize that Paul was chosen first for salvation. That's a necessary step. As we talked about that last week, you're not going to get to the service and he's not going to get to apostleship unless he first goes through salvation. And... You know that there are people that try to explain this thing away. They try to explain away the verses in the Bible about election. And they say that God chooses to service, but he doesn't choose to salvation. But the order is very clear here. Paul was called by God's grace, separated from his mother's womb, and it was for the purpose of preaching the gospel. And so you can't get to the service without going through the salvation. In fact, that order is very clearly laid out in three of the most famous verses of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's salvation. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So the first part of that, 8 and 9, is about salvation. And verse number 10 is the service part. And the service is always preceded by the salvation. And that is the order that we find in Galatians chapter 1. The sovereign choice of God is clear in our salvation. Then it's followed in verse number 16 by service. So I don't understand why people so readily accept the second part of that, but they don't get the first part. Now let's think for a few minutes about what it was that God called Paul to do. Now he was called to be an apostle, and that's really the battleground here for all of this discussion. Uh, That's where it all centers here. This is not his gospel. He didn't learn it from men. He didn't confer with any person. But he was called directly by God to salvation, then apostleship, and that apostleship made him a spokesman for God. And so the imprint of God's grace was pressed indelibly into his heart for the purpose of making Paul God's mouthpiece, and he was a mouthpiece for the gospel of grace. And unlike the other apostles that were called to be apostles to Jews, Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And and that doesn't mean he didn't minister to Jews because we know that wherever Paul went, one of the first things that he did was to make a visit to the Jewish synagogue to talk to his own people. To him, that's the logical place to start. 
But then he knows that primarily God has called him to preach to Gentiles. And he was especially conscious of that commission. And if there's anything that showed that Paul had been radically altered by the gospel of Christ, it would be this, that he preached to Gentiles. Uh, As a Pharisee in his former life, this was the last thing he'd want to do. The very last thing. He wouldn't be caught dead of living and, and consorting with Gentiles. I mean, there wasn't anything that displeased him any more than to be told that Gentiles are on equal footing with Jews. That in the eyes of God, Jews and Gentiles are alike as far as their salvation is concerned. And so you'd never imagine that he would write what he did in chapter 3 where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And you know there are three concepts in that verse that would have been utterly foreign to Paul's thinking before he became a Christian. Number one is that Jews are the same as Gentiles. Number two, that slaves are the same as the free. And number three, with great contempt, females are the same as males. I mean, that, that's just another indication that God had radically transformed his thinking. So now he's an apostle to Gentiles, to slaves, and to women, as well as to Jews and to free men. So what is he to do as an apostle? Well, he's to preach Christ. When Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, it wasn't for the purpose to give him a private revelation. The purpose was that he would publicly declare salvation at every place that he went, wherever God was pleased to send him. And so when he said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? God told him, he said, go into Damascus and there you'll find a man by the name of Ananias. And Ananias baptized him and God had already told Ananias what Paul was supposed to do. He, so Ananias related that to him, you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. God said that to him as well. So this became Paul's driving force, the preaching, seeing souls saved. I mean, that's the meat of his belly, the marrow of his bones. Paul wasn't in it for his health because goodness knows nobody suffered more than he did for all the things that he did for Christ. And Paul looked at this calling as the highest that could ever be conferred upon him. One person said, if you've been called to preach the gospel, it's a step down to be the king or a president. And, And I'll say this, folks, that although God may not call you to be a preacher... He has called you to be a witness for him. He's called all of us to be messengers for Christ. And that's the duty of all, witness for him. And I tell you truthfully, if there's one area that we need a swift kick in the pants, it's in this one. We need to be more diligent about witnessing for Christ. All of us ought to feel that responsibility. And it ought to be to the place that it actually becomes second nature to us to do it. And I know it's difficult. I know it takes courage. I know it's not comfortable. But I found out that you become more comfortable with the things that you often do. And so when you start practicing it, then it will become second nature to you. I mean, this you don't have to have a brilliant light shine around you to tell you that you're supposed to be a witness for Christ. You don't need that. God's told you in his word that all of us are supposed to do that. Now, I want to close tonight with what I think is a, an appropriate illustration. I think it's one that really goes along well with the study that we have in Matthew. This past week, we're uh, talking about the 
first parable that Jesus taught in Matthew 13, and that's the parable of the sower. And so I talked about on Sunday and will this Sunday about sowing seeds and witnessing for Christ. And it's amazing how God is able to take just little things that you do and use those. What was that verse we used Sunday? The word of God from Isaiah, the word of God does not return to him void. So any form that you put it out there, God can use it and people can actually be saved by it. Now I want you to listen to this little story. Uh, It's about a man named George Cutting who was a Christian businessman. And I want to read this to you as it was related by Lewis Johnson. He says, Mr. Cutting was just a simple Christian man who went around preaching the gospel. He was also a businessman, as I remember. One day, he was bicycling through Norfolk in England. He was an Englishman, and he said it was early in the morning, and as he was going through, he was a very quiet man, but suddenly he gained from the Lord the distinct impression that he should shout out a Bible verse. And so right in the midst of this small town, There were just a few houses around. He shouted out, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he said he cycled on a bit longer. And the Lord seemed to say definitively to him again, Say it again. And so he shouted out, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Six months later, he was visiting in that little village, and he was doing as he frequently did, just knocking on door after door. His first question, he said, was always, are you saved? First question. And Johnson says, that's what you call the direct approach. So a woman opened the door and he said, are you saved? And she said, oh, yes. About six months ago, I was in great distress of soul. I pled with God to help me. And even while I was calling upon him, I heard a voice cry out. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And she said, I was startled. And I wondered, had I really heard it right? And she said, I prayed, Lord. I said, Lord, if that's the message, repeat it again. And she said, and I heard it again. And so I trusted Christ and I'm saved. And Mr. Cutting had the joy of telling her that it was he who called out that verse. Sometimes we think it takes a formal presentation and we think it takes a pulpit to talk about this and we think it takes a, a revival or a tent meeting. But most people aren't saved that way. Most people are saved by someone who is just a humble servant of God and they've decided to share their faith. And it may be with a Bible verse, it may be with a tract, however God sees fit, but God can take that and he can save people with it. And you think about this, is there anything greater than your salvation? Is there anything that you would trade for what God has done for you in saving your soul? Is there anything that you would give for that? Well, we wonder then, why is our salvation and what we know about Jesus Christ, why is that almost always the last thing that we ever talk about? Why isn't that our conversation start out with this? Maybe we just go and ask somebody, are you saved? Use the direct approach. Probably startle a few people if you did that, but... God opens hearts, and that's, that's the most important thing. As I said on Sunday, you can't, you can't worry about the results of this thing. You just give the message that God gives you to give to people. So God has chosen us for salvation. He's chosen us to service, and Christ has been revealed to us not for our private consumption, but for our public communication. We are to tell others about him. 
and all that we would just have a small fraction of the zeal that the Apostle Paul had for witnessing for Christ. So he was separated from his mother's womb, called by the grace of God. Christ was revealed in him. And that's not the extraordinary way that God works. That's the normal way of working. And God has worked that way in every believer who ever trusted him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and what a joy and honor it is to be able to look into your word and and find these truths about how that you've by your grace, by your mercy, that you called us to our salvation. We know we had nothing at all to do with it, that we weren't looking for you, that if anybody ever sought you, it's because you first put it in their heart to do so. And we thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. And we wonder as we look around us why there aren't more people that are so interested in this message that they would come to hear more about it and to tell more people about it. Lord, help us to do that. Help us as a church to stand for you and to teach your word and let people know there is a Savior and he can save them if they'll only believe. Thank you, Lord. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.